<laughs> I didn't see that up there. Okay, so today um, we're going to talk about dissociative and somatoform disorders. We're also going to talk about um, PTSD a little bit. Uh, by the way, I, I said I have your quizzes from uh, last time, and I'll get those back to you. Um, and give you some details on that. Any questions uh, or anything else you want me to, anything you want me to cover in more detail for this chapter? Something that was confusing maybe? Yeah. Oh, well, um, definitely people are not making them up, except in the case of malingering um, and uh, Munchausen syndrome. Uh, but, f but most of the people who have the other somatoform disorders genuinely experience the symptoms, the physiological symptoms. There's just no physiological cause. Yeah, but we'll get into that when I talk about somatoform too. Anything else? Something that sticks out. And um, okay. Okay. So, uh, Let's talk about, uh, what are we going to talk about first? I think, oh, there we go. We're going to talk about PTSD. Um, the key feature of PTSD, uh, or the key factor in onset of PTSD, rather, is the idea that someone uh, is exposed to some sort of a traumatic event. And that exposure can include anything from witnessing some sort of horrific event to actually being injured and um, severely, possibly severely injured to the point of uh, almost dying from the, uh, uh, from the event. But it's also important that at the same time that that event is occurring, um, they also experience intense uh, feelings of fear, helplessness, and horror. Of course, it's difficult to imagine that anybody going through um, severely traumatic events like rape or combat um, wouldn't feel those ways. Um, but, uh, but oftentimes, um, you know, you can be exposed to these events and not have these kinds of feelings. But the more intensely you are immersed in those events, the more likely that uh, PTSD symptoms may emerge. Um, it's also, the, another requirement of the uh, diagnosis is the idea that people actually re-experience the event. Um, and they can do that in a variety of ways. Oftentimes that comes in the form of nightmares. So while they're sleeping, they'll have these very intense 
um, very realistic nightmares about the event. Um, and uh, sometimes they'll just have flashback memories. And oftentimes these flashback memories are triggered by um, maybe some sort of sound or some sort of visual stimulus that is in some way related to the, um, to the event. Um, there should be a parentheses after being there again. Um, because they also uh, need to have these um, psychological uh, and or physiological reactions to stimuli cues, stimuli in the environment that um, may resemble the uh, event or somehow cause it to be brought back into memory. Um, you know, basically from your uh, Psych 201 memory, the idea is that our memory is composed of nodes And um, each of those nodes roughly corresponds to some sort of part of a memory. And memories are, are composed by the associations that are formed between the nodes. And this is known as the association or associative network model of memory. And what will happen is, uh, let's put another node out here. What will happen is if you get a cue that triggers a particular node in memory, what happens is this thing called spreading activation. And in spreading activation, all of these associate, associative links get activated. And so you get back a whole complex set of memories just from one uh, stimuli in the environment that acts as a cue for memory. So. Um, so all you have to do is encounter a sound or a sight that's somehow maybe even tangentially related to the original event. And these um, memories and um, uh, experiences, really, like you're being, like you're actually there, um, they'll come back, they'll come flooding back. It also, the diagnosis also needs um, persistent autonomic nervous system arousal. So. You're persistently kind of, you're, you have physiological symptoms of anxiety, you know, your heart rate's elevated, maybe respiration is elevated. Um, you know, you're sort of in a constant state of stress, uh, physiologic stress response. And uh, the diagnosis requires that the duration be more than one month. Um, but one month of this is pretty awful. So, um, yeah, question, Victor? Um, that's one of the hypotheses, and we'll talk about that when we talk about the two-factor model. Yeah, yeah. So you know, it, it is it is conceptually related to uh, specific phobias in that way. Yeah. Um, frequent comorbidity, um, substance use disorders, very common. Alcohol use, for example, in order to deal with the uh, traumatic memories and the uh, the really traumatic experiences you have re-experiencing the event. Um, 
also uh, high levels of anxiety disorders and uh, depressive disorders, major depressive disorders typically, not uh, bipolar uh, disorders. Questions, comments, ideas? Let's take a look at a uh, little video clip of a fellow who has uh, combat-related PTSD. Hopefully this will play normally. For some reason, this video is uh, making my computer run really slowly. Post-traumatic stress <coughs> disorder is a severe psychological and emotional reaction that results from exposure to profoundly stressful situations. PTSD can result from exposure to situations such as assault, rape, natural disasters, and war. The symptoms must last at least a month and often last for much longer. For example, it is estimated that roughly 15% of Vietnam veterans still suffered from PTSD 15 or more years after the war. In the following interview, Carl, a 46-year-old veteran, describes some of his combat experiences in Vietnam. Carl volunteered for the Army when he was 17 years old and served as a door gunner in a search-and-destroy helicopter. The one guy was a little better because he looked right straight up and he's showing all the <coughs> in his mouth and all of a sudden his eyes come up and he's making contact as you're squeezing the trigger and uh, the just chaos. They're trying to get their weapons up but it's already too late. I mean, I'm prepared with an M60 at uh, that range, and you're probably 80, 100 feet above them is all shooting down through the jungle, but um, it's not that, um, it's not that hard to hit what you're aiming at. An M60 is putting out uh, a fair amount of ammo per second, and uh, so it just exploded. <coughs> I can't say that I saw the rounds hit, but I saw people dropping and falling, and the guy that was standing back here, he started to move away, and I'm spraying the whole area. And when we came back over and rolled back in to take a look, we didn't get any fire. And so then we had, uh, which meant that either they had left or they were dead. Um, so Cobra came in and attacked them across the and put some rockets in it, and then we called up the aerorite platoon and come in. And, we had five dead with uh, their weapons and found their boats in the river and destroyed those and packed up their crap and a good morning, a great morning. Uh, it worked. It worked great with nobody being hurt. It felt exhilarating. It felt just fucking crazy. <laughs> just, uh, I just have to get goosebumps when I think about it. It's just 
absolutely perfect, and nobody's ever heard of it. When Carl returned to the United States, he felt alienated from the people around him. Few people could understand the traumas he had experienced. His feelings of isolation, anger, and pain contributed to the development of his symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. Coming back from Vietnam as a single person, I come back, I flew back with a group of guys, got off the airplane and went home, but I wasn't with anybody in my unit, I was by myself, I went back home, there wasn't anybody else in town at the time that had been in Vietnam that I knew about. Eventually I did find out there were some, not a great deal in Port Angeles, Washington, but there were some. Uh, if anybody asked anything, they want to know how many people you killed, they want to know that side of it. They, they don't want to talk about what it's really like or what it was like for you. Just want to talk about the, the gore and stuff. So what I figured out when I came back on my second leave, I, I had some pictures that I took of a napalm body and a picture was holding the head with blood running down my arms. And you know, people would ask me, I'd give these pictures to look at and they'd shut up and go away. I saw a bunch of people in school and things like that. They're still hanging out at the ice circle. Uh, wherever, in hamburgers, and uh, I, I realized, I just, they were kids, and I wasn't a kid anymore, and I'd never be able to see the world the way they did, and that's, you know, I just, I really felt like I was really different and uh, maybe dirty. walk in a different path in life and you can never come back. I can never have that innocence uh, feeling free to ha be happy and enjoy life in, um, as a child with all the, without all the horrific pieces of understanding what life is really about other than you know, with death and destruction and all that. And that's a lot to lose. As you think back to um, what it, think about what all the kids did uh, that I went to school with and you're really jealous. Sequences. 
Carl describes many of the symptoms that are typical of people with post-traumatic stress disorder, including hypervigilance, flashbacks, startle responses, and intrusive thoughts. He also describes some of the strategies that help him to cope with this disorder. Went back to school after I started PTSD treatment. Went back into college and uh, when I started out, I always sat in the far left classroom over by the window, the very back of the room, by the window. Not by the door, but that's where someone come in. And I knew all the bushes down there and where there was any possibility. I stand with bushes every time I would sit down. I knew which guy around me to take out first if anything happened. In the order I would take them out. I knew what to do if someone popped the door and flopped a grenade in. I had a flashback when I was bowling. And I kept bowling, and I kept seeing this Paddy Dyke, the corner of Paddy Dyke, and there's uh, trees, rubber trees just beyond it. There's an infantry squad pinned down. There's gooks on the other side of the, in the trees. They're shooting, but it, and we're in a helicopter trying to provide fire, but we can't get an angle where we can shoot and protect them. What is that? I actually wrote that one out. I kept writing it. I kept seeing it. And I could hear the shot. I could smell it. I could, uh, <laughs> you just, I could smell it in part of it. stuff. It was a spoon. When I get startled, I get angry immediately. Um, I yell at the kids. thing I'm going to do if I get woken too quick is grab a gun. You know, wife learns that she walks to the door and says your name. She doesn't come shake you or grab you because to wake you that way is uh, you're, you're going to get hit. You know, if you, uh, just any type of startle like that. And it bothers me that startle, I, I was in a meeting here a couple years ago with other professionals and a window dropped and slammed on the case behind me and I threw a cup of coffee and was under the table with my peers and I just, oh, and, and I was just so angry. I had a nightmare and intrusive thoughts for a number of years, a, a pile of bodies that uh, follows me around. Um, mostly skeletal, um, kind of like the skeleton on the board there, the, the skull, um, you see in the eyes, and the, um, just this huge, overwhelming pile of bodies that uh, um, you don't know anybody, you don't, it's just... My sleep starts getting off and I start sleeping less. I know that there's something stressful going on that I need to deal with because the one thing I know about PTSD, it's a stress-related disorder. If I can manage the stress in my life, symptoms stay down. 
so I monitor my sleep. And the next one for me is hypervigilance. The, as, and if it gets to that point, I'm starting to look and pay more attention to things and get anxious about things when I'm around too many people, I know there's something stressful going on. And the third one in line for me is the startle response. And so I kind of watch those symptoms. Also, and each person has those ones that are really uh, personal, say, <laughs> that fit them so well. Carl profoundly regrets the loss of his innocence that occurred during his years of combat. As a Native American, however, he takes consolation in tribal beliefs about the essential role of the warrior in guaranteeing the survival of his people. Lakota think that the, the women and the children are the most important, and that's why the warrior walks at the front, you know, because he's expendable, and that's okay, because you're defending and keeping that alive, to keep it going, and that's, that, that's a good concept. That's the way it's supposed to be. If you don't take care of the women and children, you don't have the ability to go on, and that really helps to have something like that to look for, to look at, and to be a part of. So it's okay for me to uh, have... Uh, sacrificed and to do that because it helped keep that going and uh, someone has to do it someone has to be willing any uh, comments on that it's hard to watch huh there's a lot of suffering there um and it's particularly relevant because uh, every day, you know, we have uh, hundreds, uh, if not thousands, of uh, soldiers coming back from Iraq that um, are at risk for developing uh, PTSD. Uh, so, uh, and uh, one of the one of the problems with the current uh, war is that a lot of the soldiers are being drawn from reserve units. And the reserve, not, I'm sorry, not the reserve units, but the National Guard units. And the National Guard units don't typically have the same kinds of reintegration programs um, that the um, career military does. Um, and reintegration programs slowly reintroduce the soldier from the role of a, a, a trained killer to the role of a civilian, because those are very different um, those are very different roles, very different experiences, and um, it's necessary to make that adjustment um, because uh, because of a lot of what he's saying. That once you've gone through an experience like this, you know it's hard to relate to other people that don't have that um, don't have that experience um, and that still have the innocence about um, you know war and. Uh, and our place in it. Yeah, uh, Victor, do you have a question? Yeah, one of the things he mentioned was Vietnam, he got a lot of almost negative response. Yep. Um, during that time period, there was a lot of negative response towards Vietnam and the soldiers. Yep. So the question is, since uh, since American culture generally um, 
tends to uh, tends to view the soldiers differently that are returning from Iraq than American culture did with soldiers returning from Vietnam. Will the uh, Vietnam, I'm sorry, will the Iraq veterans have a lower incidence of PTSD? I don't know. I don't know what the statistics look like right now. Um, that's just really one factor in the development of the disorder, though. Um, uh, and it's really going to depend, a lot of it will depend on the other kinds of social support that uh, those soldiers have, and we'll talk about that in a second. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I know that I had uh, I had that similar experience of loss of innocence and having difficulty relating to people when I um, was at uh, Whitman College and uh, I was an undergraduate and I, I got cancer and I had to go for chemotherapy and I remember that feeling of coming back and like um, looking at these students who um, they were making plans for the rest of their life as if nothing bad would ever happen to them, you know? And sort of like, it, it was this weird kind of dichotomy that I remember experiencing. Like how can, you know, I wish I could live back in that innocence again. And ultimate, ultimately I healed from that. And I was able to, to feel that kind of innocence and optimism for the future again. But, um, but it is really difficult when you go through one of those experiences and uh, it's really uh, life-changing and transforming. So, um, so then the issue with PTSD becomes what are the factors that are relevant to the risk of developing PTSD? Because not everybody who goes through an experience like this, you know, some people are going to go through um, tremendously more horrific experiences uh, than do people who get PTSD. Um, just because you go through one of these horrific experiences doesn't mean you're going to develop PTSD. Um, so what are some of the uh, factors in risk? And then what are some of the factors in resilience to avoiding um, the onset of PTSD? Well, first of all, one of the main risks is how intense um, was the stress that you went through? Um, and that will vary oftentimes on exactly how... Um, how physically affecting that the experience is. Um, typically, people are more at risk if they're more physically affected than people who just observe a horrific experience, right? Um, social support is going to be a huge factor in risk. Those people who have uh, very good social support networks, families, friends, um, uh, relationship partners, who are patient and able to help the, uh, help the individual work through the symptoms and then find some treatment. Um, that's, a, that's a real important factor. And then uh, Victor was asking about um, classically conditioned fears. And so your book talks about this idea of the two-factor uh, theory, um, that these fears, these, uh, the PTSD, these experiences cause classically conditioned responses, physiological and psychological responses. And then, um, and it works in, in tandem with operant conditioning because the avoidance is reinforcing 
for those fears, right? I'm sorry, the avoidance is, is reinforced. It's a reinforcing consequence of not dealing with, uh, you know, you feel better, so you're not dealing with those fears rather than confronting the fears. And we talked about this with anxiety disorders, that unless you go through an extinction procedure and you just engage in avoidance, you're never going to um, actually undo that classically conditioned fear. But it's very reinforcing to avoid it because you feel better with not having to deal with it, right? What about resilience? Well, um, as we said, not everybody develops PTSD. And in fact, some people report coming out of the kinds of experiences that would lead to PTSD or have led to PTSD in other people and they come out of those experiences with um, some sort of growth. Personal growth occurs as a, as a product of those experiences. So um, this is something that my, um, my advisor in graduate school, Peter Sudfeld, is a uh, Holocaust survivor, childhood survivor of the Holocaust. And um, he's worked on uh, resilience issues. And one of the things that he calls this is post-traumatic stress reorder rather than disorder. And what he sees in some of these Holocaust survivors is not what you would expect, which is that you know they've gone through this horrific experience, life-threatening experience, and um, they've survived. So why aren't the rates of PTSD extraordinarily high among these individuals? And it's related to uh, something that is termed uh, salutogenesis, the idea that um, coming out of these traumas, you somehow undergo some personal transformation. There's a uh, fellow named Viktor Frankl. And uh, Viktor Frankl wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. He was a Holocaust survivor. And in this book, he describes the the um, the experience of meaning making that we go through when we come out of these kinds of experiences that we have to reconstruct meaning in our lives in a lot of ways and um, uh, Sudfeld's research uh, showed that in general Holocaust survivors um, really do quite well when you compare them with matched Jewish controls at the same of the same age um, this is uh, research, I think, in Canada and the United States. Um, when you compare them, they actually are doing quite well in general. Um, they generally have very good mental health. Uh, they have um, good relationships with their families and in their social environments. They do very well occupationally. Um, so um, I don't want you to get the idea that you know, if you ever do go through one of these experiences, you're going to come out of it with PTSD because that's not going to be the, necessarily going to be the case. So. Questions? Uh, PTSD? Now, uh, don't forget, hold on a second. Don't forget, um, mental health going into the event is going to be a factor of risk too. If you're already, um, if you're already in some way uh, experiencing a psychological disorder, you may be at a higher, uh, I think there's a higher incidence of PTSD for people that have a pre-existing psychological disorder, yeah. So the book that you 
Oh, really? Yeah, right. That's a good question. I don't know. So what, um, so, uh, what distinguishes grieving from uh, PTSD? Well, um, well, if we go, uh, if we go back and look at the um, symptom set, um, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. I never thought about that, yeah. Yeah, I hadn't either. I didn't know about that statistic. I didn't read it in the text. So. Hmm. Right, right. But if you did... So if you did, it might, uh, it might qualify. Um, I don't know. That's a that's a good point. That deserves some research. Um, okay, so let's talk about dissociative disorders. Um, dissociation. Um, Dissociation in general means um, that somehow you experience a disruption in the normal continuous flow of everyday experience. Um, so what we call these integrated functions of memory, identity, and consciousness. Now remember, your identity is um, tied into a lot of different things. Your identity is tied into your social groups. Your identity is tied into your memory of who you are, who you have been. Um, consciousness is something that's um, uh, very ambiguous and hard to define. But I think in general, if you think about dissociation, think about what happens if you have some sort of a disruption in, as I said, this normal experience of continuous flow of time and continuous flow of identity through time. What happens when your identity is disrupted in some way? And it's really hard to, to conceptualize this um, having not gone through it. Um, but let's see if we can help you um, understand this. So one uh, form of dissociation will take the form of amnesia so dissociative amnesia. Um, in some cases, dissociation will take the form of depersonalization. So the feeling that you are separate from your mind, separate from your body, that you're somehow outside of this that we consider yourself, right? You're outside yourself. And then um, in rare cases, we will see um, individuals who actually have distinct personalities with their own continuous sense of identity and separate memories in some cases. So very bizarre kinds of um, psychological experiences. 
Um, one thing um, to think about is the idea of conscious experience versus unconscious experience. And, um, you know, typically what we don't really talk that much about the unconscious now, but certainly Freud um, was interested in the unconscious and how the unconscious affected us. Um, and in some ways, Freud says um, uh, dissociation is really a way for the ego to defend itself against the id, this um, a burning, um, uh, lustful, uh, libidinous desires that we have. And um, in order to protect itself from the id, the ego depersonalizes or dissociates um, from the self. Um, anyway, oh, I, taught, I already told you about hysteria, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of a crazy concept, huh? So, um, when we think about uh, dissociative disorders, we're going to think of them in four sort of broad um, categories of disorders. Um, one of them is going to revolve around memory. Um, others are going to revolve more around depersonalization, and a third, uh, and and the other is going to involve. Um, these distinct kinds of personalities that have their own very continuous qualities. So um, dissociative uh, fugue uh, involves, well, let me talk about dissociative amnesia first. Dissociative amnesia um, means you suddenly forget everything about your past. Typically, what will happen is um, the person will have experienced some sort of trauma or some sort of extreme stressor prior to the amnesia. Um, dissociative fugue is dissociative amnesia with the additional um, aspect that the person suddenly leaves where they have been living right previously, and they travel somewhere. And sometimes uh, what will happen is they will get somewhere else, they will essentially wake up there with no idea who they are, um, and they will actually begin to form a new life in this new place. Um, fortunately, I guess you could say, fortunately with, um, uh, you know, with more modern communication technologies, uh, people are much better able to, and, and DNA, um, evidence, people are much better able to find out who they are if they experience this. But dissociative fugue and dissociative amnesia are relative, all of these disorders are relatively rare. Um, you know, we've, we've talked previously about the mood disorders and the anxiety disorders, and those are the two biggies. Um, those are the two that you're going to encounter a lot in individuals. These are relatively rare. Depersonalization disorder. Again, this very um, disturbing experience of being outside yourself, not being apart or connected to yourself. You're sort of outside your body looking in. Uh, and then what used to be known as uh, multiple personality disorder is uh, now more commonly referred to as dissociative identity disorder. 
So the actual separation or dissociation of one in one unique identity from another unique identity, right? Uh, yeah, uh, Victor, do you have a question? It's okay. Um, be, uh, it's uh, more likely that it has a uh, biological cause. Um, less likely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what's, uh, what's most likely happening when you have a seizure, which has a biomedical explanation, is that um, you're experiencing um, essentially a shutdown and a um, and almost like a reboot of your brain systems, and so your ability to um, do that long-term memory integration is disrupted. That process that typically happens in the hippocampus. That would be my guess. But again, this is going to be diagnosed in absence of. A, um, a medical disorder. Oh. Yeah. So okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. Um, whenever we do the diagnostics, remember we use the multi-axial system, right. and one of those axes um, has to do with medical conditions, and we always rule out medical condition causes before we look for um, psychological uh, causes of disorders, explanations for disorders. Yeah. Yeah. And similarly, these are all gonna, um, you, whenever you make a diagnosis for any of, almost any of the disorders in the DSM, one of the first things to get thrown out is a substance, is it related to a substance use disorder? And, you know, if you get amnesia because you have substance, you know, have alcoholism, that's not dissociative amnesia, that's amnesia because you're an alcoholic, yeah. 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 I've got another uh, video clip, but let's take a little break before we uh, do that. Um, it's getting on four o'clock. Sylvia's fading fast. So um, I uh, come back in about uh, ten minutes. I'll be fine. <laughs> Okay, so this next clip uh, is a clip um, that's an older clip, I think from, I don't remember what TV show it's from, but uh, it's about a fellow named Tony, and uh, Tony has dissociative identity disorder, uh, which at the time of this, uh, that this clip was made, uh, was referred to as multiple personality disorder, and I think he has 57 personalities. Um, but this will give you a sense of what that experience is like. It's hard. There's days where you wonder Thank you. how things even got done. Tony suffers from multiple personality disorder. He has at least 53. Among them, Tony the original, the imposter, the controller. Dee, who remembers everything. 
Richard, a cousin who died of a brain tumor a decade ago. When Richard talks to me, it's a different sound. Uh, Tony the imposter. It's basically the same as myself. Didi, like I say, he's real different. Uh, it's unbelievable. But they're all different. They're, they've all got their, their, own, their own voices. It's not where, you know, we're all the same. Tony is a fairly fragmented multiple who, instead of having that sort of nicely free-flowing consciousness, which is a series of kind of normal, natural transitions from one state into another, uh, is a person who really believes that he's sharing his body with a whole lot of people. And the problem with that is that he has no control when the other person is going to come out and take consciousness away from him. No matter what I did, to be myself, there's days I can't control. It'll just take over. He's in too many pieces. He's, you know, just too many cells to deal with. But at least I'm able to talk to them now. They acknowledged their names to me, which is something. You know, it's a big change in him. Never did that before. Do you know this woman? No. You want to ask her who she is? Why? Okay. Does that mean anything to you? No. Did you know that Tony's married? Yeah, I know. This is who he's married to. Beautiful. A therapy session. Tony's personalities are drawn out. Each is probed for its secrets. You don't really believe me. That's his wife, it's not my wife. Are you married? No. Do you have a girlfriend? No. A personality change can be subtle or wrenching. A cough. A hand to the head, a movement of the eyes. You doing all right? Huh? Are you doing all right? I think so. What? I'm not doing that right? Do you know all of these people? Why don't you let that little boy come out? That's all right. Let him come out. That's okay. Hello? Anthony? Anthony, don't be frightened. It's okay. Do you know this lady? Yeah. This is Roberta. Don't be scared. No. It's okay. I'm here. Are you okay. about five years old? to tell me why his hand is trembling so. Hmm? What do you want? Richard. What? How are you doing? Those lights really are getting mm. to you. Richard, do you know that little boy that was just now, that little boy whose hand shakes like that? No. You sure? What did you say? Do you know the story about the little boy? No. Why does your head hurt so badly? Mm. Lots of things about her. Are you the original? Yeah. You sure? Sure. Is there anybody inside you who knows everything about everyone? So-called memory trace? Probably Dee Dee could remember everything. There are at least three Dee Dees. Seven years old, 14, 37. Tony's illness began in childhood when most cases of multiple personality begin. 
Most are triggered by the need to flee psychologically from real physical or sexual abuse. Nobody yet knows what triggered Tony's. No, it's only one deal. <laughs> You're learning too fast. Am I? Mm. I think the multiple, in a way, is a kind of paradox because simultaneously he has an exaggerated ability to focus. That is, he focuses out existence altogether and substitutes an alternate existence, but also is unable to focus volitionally on anything he wants to focus on at the moment. If the different selves don't in turn tell me, say, hey, we did this or we did that, I'm lost. I have no recollection of what happened. It's like uh, we went to a wedding. And I swore to God, I wasn't at that wedding. I had no memory. The imposter took over, blanked me out the whole night. And there I am, you know, a couple days later going around asking people, did you see me there? Was I there? How can the brain completely suppress one so-called self and focus on another? Research into multiple personality disorder is so new. When it really hit me was when I was down in Petesimera. I said, well, I, you know, I was hoping that I proved them wrong. Because I think mainly the reason why I went down there was, well, let me go and prove these people wrong. People ain't right. What we know is that the brain is all the time generating electrical signals, electrical activity. If you put an electrode on the skull or on the head, you can measure spontaneous electrical activity from the brain. Now, if you stimulate that person with a flash of light or a sound or an electric shock, for example, you get an evoked electrical spike. And that's what we call an evoked potential to distinguish it from the spontaneous electrical activity that's going on all the time, which is known as the EEG or electroencephalogram. Putnam and his colleagues were searching for differences in brain activity among the personalities of multiples. They matched a group of multiples with a group of normal individuals who were asked to mimic or fake new personalities. Then they tested the evoked potentials of both groups, the multiples for three of their personalities, the controls for three personalities they had invented. Among others, they tested Tony. In Tony's case, we had three of his alternate personalities tested, and we tested each of these personalities for a number of days. And what you can see is that Tony, Dee Dee, and Richard show differences in the mapping of those of those potentials across the brain. Frank finally came into the room, and I looked at the papers, and he says, this is your brain. And I said, yeah, he said, well, this is Dee Dee's brain. This is Tony's brain. This is Richard's brain. There is a Dee Dee that lives inside you. There is a Richard. There is Tony the original. I got so upset. And I felt like I was just... Everything just came out of me. I had to get out of the room. Intriguing biological differences, as seen in these evoked potentials among alter personality states, continue to be reported by investigators. In addition, Putnam and colleagues have found stable differences on repeated testings of visual acuity, ocular function, heart rate, galvanic skin response, respiratory rate, and regional cerebral blood flow. This suggests that there may, in fact, be some real bodily changes that occur when the alternate personalities are out.
So that gives some interesting uh, data. Can you hit that yeah. light there? Thanks. These findings suggest that multiple personality disorder is a valid psychiatric condition that provides an important scientific window into the organization of personality and consciousness. So uh, what are your comments about that? Uh, no, no. I don't know. I don't know. And I presume that, um, you know, they've got some updated um, neuroscience um, research that, that obviously isn't included here. Do I know what, how old this, this film is? I'm going to say it might be close to 15, 20 years. Did you notice the hospital that the uh, neuroscientist was from? Who noticed it? Couple. Does that ring a bell? From. So yeah, it's St. Elizabeth's Hospital. Yeah. <laughs> from the from an unquiet mind. Um, so now one of the one of the problems with the diagnosis for dissociative identity disorder is that it is convert controversial, right? Um, do you remember reading uh, in the textbook? Um, there, um, it's very rare extraordinarily rare, uh, even among rare disorders of um, uh, psychological disorders, it's extremely rare. And um, most of the cases seemed to have come from a limited number of psychiatrists. Um, and so, um, so it's still not entirely, um, it's still controversial, it's still not entirely accepted by everybody at this point. But uh, these people do have these, have a very, um, interesting subjective experience of being different people. Um, and certainly uh, from the um, video, you see that there are actually some physiological changes too. All right, uh, any more questions, comments on dissociative disorders before we go to somatoform? So somatoform disorders. Soma, body, right? Somatoform um, disorders that take that that take uh, uh, that that exist as part of the body, um, take form in the body, um, and the key feature for somatoform disorders is that people who have a somatoform disorder have the subjective experience um, or the fear of a physical illness. So either they experience subjectively the symptoms of a physical illness or they have a, a, an overwhelming and incapacitating fear that they have an illness. So, um, uh, and it's important that um, obviously you can't find a physical cause using diagnostic tests, right? If you can find a physical cause using a diagnostic test, it's not um, a somatoform disorder, it's a medical disorder, right? So when we talk about somatoform disorders, um, we think, uh, and I'm gonna talk about today, uh, conversion disorders, hypochondriasis, so you've heard of hypochondriacs, right? That's somebody with hypochondriasis. Uh, somatization disorder, these two are very similar, and I'll tell you what the difference is when we get there. Body dysmorphic disorder, a very bizarre form of a disorder, 
which involves individuals um, um, hating, um, disliking a part of their body, and in some cases uh, removing it, and then uh, malingering, which is uh, which is a considered a somatoform disorder, but the person is actually um, pretending they're not. Um, they don't have the uh, the actual uh, subjective experience of the um, symptoms. So let's talk about um, conversion disorder. Um, conversion disorder comes from, uh, originally uh, starts out with Freud. Um, the psychodynamic perspective, remember, focuses on unconscious conflicts. And those unconscious conflicts will lead to neurotic behavior because they arouse anxiety. And um, what Freud will say is these unconscious conflicts are converted into physical symptoms. So uh, one of the things that Freud did after he, uh, he's a physician in Vienna, and he traveled to France to work with um, uh, Charcot and uh, uh, Charcot and, and Bruner, who were both hypnotists in France. And Charcot and Bruner had started treating relatively wealthy uh, Parisian women. And so they would treat them for um, these conversion disorders, which typically took the, the form of some sort of loss of sensation, either what they called glove anesthesia, where you lose sensation in your hand, or um, paralysis of a limb, right? Um, and um, so what they would do is they would hypnotize these women and um, they would uh, experience a remission of the conversion disorder and it would last for a few weeks and the women would have to come back and be hypnotized again. And eventually Freud wanted to develop a more long-lasting treatment um, which would become uh, his free association therapy. And free association therapy will eventually become the talk therapy that we use now um, for psychological treatment in general. So he's extraordinarily important in the development of um, psychological treatments. Um, another uh, form of the conversion disorder was called pseudosiasis, which essentially um, meant that a woman became pregnant without actually having a baby in her uterus. So they would experience all of the symptoms of pregnancy, including distended belly, um, but without an actual pregnancy uh, being present. Very bizarre kinds of, um, uh, kinds of somatoform uh, disorders. Um, what we see in, some, in conversion disorders is um, very often there will be, again, stress-related, some sort of trauma or stress prior to the, um, uh, prior to the conversion disorder. Oh, Victor, yeah. Um, sounds more like a panic attack, but um, yeah. 
Yeah, I'm not certain. Um, I don't think conversion disorders typically involve autonomic nervous system arousal. Okay. Um, but um, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, hypochondriasis, um, we may in common parlance in this culture call someone a hypochondriac when they think, you know, they're sick, but they really aren't. Um, but in hypochondriasis, true hypochondriasis, um, the key uh, symptom is an intense fear of having a disease uh, despite any kind of medical proof. Um, otherwise. So, um, you know, you might think, oh, well, you know, um, I have, you know, I, I think I have uh, venereal disease because I'm uh, having these weird symptoms. That's a lot different than having this intense fear and having um, gone through diagnostics to prove that you don't have the disorder. So these individuals, regardless of having gone through um, diagnostics, they still insist that they have this disease, that, uh, that they, they still insist on being afraid that they have it. The symptomology that these people exhibit tends to be relatively vague. Um, it doesn't generally tend to be focused on a specific um, system or a specific area of the body. Uh, yeah, Laura, do you have a question? Um, yeah, earlier you used this term for other reasons about identity and Um, yes, except, except that the onset of his um, symptoms came before age 30. And so I'll tell you why he has, he, why I think he had somatization disorder and not hypochondriasis. You can't be hypochondriac before 30? Um, very rare that hypochondriasis will occur before about age 30. That's a good question. <laughs> it's unknown, yeah. Yep. I don't know. Uh, if yeah, it could be if those surgeries were traumatic in some way. Uh, I can imagine it might be part of the onset. Yeah. Um, also, anesthesia for surgery has all kinds of weird effects in the body and can do all kinds of strange things. Um, so, yeah. Um, oftentimes, these people can be successfully treated with a placebo drug. So basically, um, give them a, uh, a sugar pill and tell them that it, um, you know, it's a treatment for their whatever their symptomology is. And they typically will accept that, and they will go away for a while. Um, you know, it's kind of funny to say that, but think of, think of yourself in the shoes of a doctor who has a patient who continually comes back to you and says, I know we got the test last week, but I, 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 I'm convinced that the symptoms didn't exist last week. They're really intense this week, so if you do the test again, they'll find it this time. Can you imagine how frustrating that is for a doctor? So, um, so in a lot of ways, doctors 
um, need to find a way to deal with these cases. You know, they need to figure out how they're going to quote unquote treat them so that the person feels better. And of course, the ultimate treatment is through um, psychological help, but yeah. No, uh, they might they might assign a fake name to it. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure how they do the placebo treatment, but placebos don't just work for people who have hypochondriasis. Um, there's some good controlled studies of placebos in Japan, uh, which show that um, somewhere between 30 and 40 percent of people will actually experience a remission of symptoms uh, when they're given a placebo, even though it has no. Uh, active effect in the body. So, um, so placebos are not, uh, you know, they're sometimes useful for treatment even with um, normal individuals, yeah. Um, the other important thing about hypochondriasis is these individuals are not um, delusional. Um, they instead are completely rational and they rationalize the um, fear by the fact that there must have been something wrong with the tests, that they didn't find the disease that I'm afraid that I have, right? So let's do another test. The biopsy, you know, the biopsy got the wrong set of cells. We need to do the biopsy again, right? Um, and so this, um, this can be very, um, you know, it's very disturbing for the individual who has the disorder. It's also very, um, disturbing for the individuals who are caring uh, for that person. Contrast, or not contrast, but compare hypochondriasis uh, with somatization disorder. For one thing, somatization disorder usually has an onset before age 30 rather than uh, after 30. Um, and somatization disorder requires very specific system uh, complaints in terms of symptoms. So um, they need to have, uh, for example, pain symptoms in four different areas of the body. Uh, they need to have two symptoms of gastrointestinal problems. They need to have one uh, pseudoneurological and then one sexual symptom. And those symptoms don't have to occur simultaneously. They can occur over the course of the disorder. Um, so in the case of an individual that I know, who will go unnamed on the podcast. Um, this person started out um, with um, pseudo-neurological problems uh, in his vision. He, um, as a teenager, uh, thought that there was something wrong with his vision. Of course, vision tests and uh, diagnostics couldn't find a problem. Later on, this person experienced sexual uh, uh, dysfunctions. Um, frequently complained of problems with digestion, um, the color of the bowels. Um, you know, this person would talk about how their bowels were gray instead of brown, and, um, uh, and also experienced um, uh, pain symptoms in different parts of his body. Um, so the onset typically is before age 30. These symptoms come and go over the course of this person's life. And so the history of these um, symptoms is long and complicated. And um, of course, regardless of how many diagnostic tests you, found, you run, we can't find any 
physiological cause uh, for the disorder, for the symptoms. Somatization occurs more commonly in certain groups. For one thing, people in lower socioeconomic status groups, for one reason or another, um, it's unknown why these uh, correlations exist. Um, highly uh, religious individuals um, seem to have more incidence of somatization. Uh, individuals who um, are what are called sexually intolerant, um, so they tend to not tolerate sexual differences very well. Um, and people who are um, less educated. Of course, all of this, um, a lot of this can be related um, to socioeconomic status too. And the other important thing with um, somatization disorder is the person will seek out diagnostics from more than one doctor. They're not gonna, they're not gonna stay with one family physician, for example. They're gonna go off to a lot of different specialists to try to find a cause for the um, uh, symptoms that they're subjectively experiencing. Yeah, uh, Victor? Uh, so what's the difference between this and someone who um, harms themselves with the intention of getting care from a doctor? That uh, disorder is known as, did, is it in your textbook? I can't remember. Uh, facetious disorder, yeah, I'm sorry. Facetious disorder, yeah. Is that right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and they, they may harm themselves to do that, yeah. Um, okay. One of the uh, ideas behind why people engage in hypochondriasis and somatization is what are they getting out of it? Well, their invalid status, their status as an invalid, someone who needs to be taken care of, has certain kinds of secondary gains to it. So um, you are getting the attention that you want, right? Plus, you may be getting out of some responsibility that you need to serve. So for example, military service. Sometimes these disorders will emerge as a product of uh, military service. And um, this person really doesn't want to engage in that responsibility and will somatize disorders. Um, the costs of it are very high in terms of truancy, absenteeism, and then ultimately these people will oftentimes lose their jobs because you can't keep working if you're out of work all the time going to doctors, right? Plus the cost of going to the doctors if you uh, even if you have medical insurance, the co-pays and deductibles and things like that. Okay. Here's a really weird one for you. Body dysmorphic disorder. The diagnosis of body dysmorphic disorder is, is um, somewhat controversial and the reason it's controversial is it's not clear whether it should be it it should be included in somatization disorders or whether it should be considered a dissociative disorder or maybe even an obsessive compulsive uh, disorder an anxiety disorder 
Um, the primary delusion in um, body dysmorphic disorder is that some part of your body is so badly malformed or, or, or mangled or ugly that you can't stand to look at it. It is so repulsive to you that you have to find a way to get rid of it. And that may mean cutting it off. So uh, people will sometimes have this with their hands, and they will sever their hands at the wrist. Um, uh, with their face, they may try to cut, uh, for example, if they notice uh, a minor a defect in their skin, they may take a razor and try to cut it out, right? Um, so very, very um, disturbed thinking about the body part. Um, and it's a very obsessive kind of um, experience. They can't stop thinking about how ugly that body part is and how much they want to get rid of it, right? Um, so um, they'll go through these very elaborate behaviors in a very compulsive kind of way um, in order to try to uh, maybe cover it up. Um, so they'll wear, for example, they may never wear short-sleeved shirts, even though it's boiling hot. Um, they may never uh, be able to wear shorts because they think their legs are ugly. They may um, try to obscure their face with lots of makeup. Um, now, um, what's different between an OCD and this is what? When people have an obsessive compulsive disorder, they know it's irrational. There's a delusion here, and that delusional quality is telling them that it's not irrational, that it's real. Right? Yeah, um, Victor. Oh, I don't know if there's any relationship between serial killers and body dysmorphic disorder. I haven't seen that. Um, fortunately, we've got um, some good treatments for it, both psychological treatments, therapies, and uh, drug treatments. The SSRIs, for some reason, tend to work pretty well with these. Why? Um, probably because it helps relieve some of these obsessive and compulsive uh, symptoms. Um, um, but oftentimes it, it relies on very intensive behavioral and cognitive behavioral therapy um, to try to correct those um, erroneous thoughts about the body part. I mean, you can show somebody a mirror and say, look, you're not ugly, right? And they'll say, no, I'm ugly. You can show, a pic show them a picture of their identical twin and say, look, this is your identical twin. And they'll say, oh, he's not ugly. But you show them their picture, and they say, oh, I'm ugly. Right? So it's very delusional, very um, um, uh, consuming. Yeah? Um, so OK, good, good question. Um, so what's the relationship between body dysmorphic disorder and anorexia? Because uh, adolescents with body dysmorphic disorder oftentimes look quite similar to individuals with eating disorders because it will oftentimes focus around how fat they are or how fat they feel. And that's, um, that's 
one of the key symptoms of an eating disorder is body image. Um, you know, you're, you're, you, have a, you have an incorrect body image of yourself. You know, you see yourself as fat, but you're 30 pounds underweight, right? So it's, it's got that similar quality. It's not as delusional. And also, the, in order to be uh, diagnosed as an eating disorder separately, um, there are certain weight criterias and behavior criterias that are associated with it. So it is different than eating disorders, but it has a lot of very similar um, characteristics and features. And in fact, for some of the eating disorders, SSRIs are used also. So there is some overlap, but there's specific categories for eating disorders. I'm glad you brought that up because I was thinking about that the other night. Last thing I'll talk about is uh, malingerers. Malingerers um, are basically people who um, fake their psychological problems and sometimes physiological problems too. Um, and so um, one of the characteristics of malingering is um, what's called Munchausen syndrome, which is um, a situation where somebody goes to a doctor and they will try to trick the doctor into thinking they have a particular disorder. And so they'll try to trick them into giving them treatments or whatever. Um, there's also another, uh, there's also another um, disorder called Munchausen's by proxy where people will do this with their children. They will bring their children and try and convince the doctor that the child has a disorder. Um, and um, you know this is not as severe as the others, but it can be as disruptive um, in terms of functioning. And certainly, if you get a child treated for a disorder that they don't have, that's going to have um, negative effects. Yeah. But what about cases where individuals are actually making their children sick in order to fulfill that? Yeah. I don't know if that's considered Munchausen's by proxy. It might be. Um, although it sounds criminal rather than a psychological disorder, but yeah. Would a seeker be considered having Would a what? Be seeker. seeker. Uh, someone that goes to a doctor specifically with the idea of trying to get painkillers. Um, again, this would have to be in the absence of a substance use disorder, and I would presume that would be a product of the addiction. Yeah. I'm sorry, you know, um, always consider in these diagnostic categories that they always exclude out other medical problems and um, substance use disorders. Um, you have your textbook? The, um, I don't remember where this is in here. So um, if, you, if you have your textbook, um, on page 100, they have the multi-axial system. And so um, uh, axis three is general medical conditions. Um, includes medical problems that can cause symptoms of an axis one or axis two disorder or act as a psychological stressor. So that's always 
in these somatoform disorders that's always excluding axis three stuff. Um, and um, so in order to be on an axis one uh, diagnosis, it uh, has to exclude axis three stuff. So. Any questions? Um, I prepared that uh, clip of video from Unknown White Male, but I don't have time to play it. But um, if you want to go to the uh, video store, it's probably available. And this is uh, this movie is the story of uh, Douglas Bruce. Uh, Doug Bruce uh, was a a stockbroker in New York City. Um, he gave up being a stockbroker and went to photography school to learn photography. Um, he essentially woke up one day on a subway in New York City and didn't know who he was, where he was, how he got there, had no memory of his past. And um, he wound up going to a hospital and uh, the hospital saw him and eventually um, he finds out who he is because they wind up getting in touch with somebody who he knows. Well, this movie um, traces uh, about three, two or three years of his life. It's, it's, not, it's, it's a documentary. Um, one of his friends was a filmmaker. And as soon as he told his filmmaker about this, a couple months after um, the uh, incident, the filmmaker started um, filming him. And so it traces his journey of trying to figure out who he is and to try to get some sense of identity back. Because remember, um, your identity and your personality is so tied into your memory of who you are, um, your family history, the groups you've belonged to, the experiences you've had. And so it's, um, I like this because it gives a real good um, example of how disturbing it is to lose your identity and to try to create a new identity. Essentially, um, he has to go, for example, and meet his family for the first time, his parents, his siblings, his friends from, uh, you know, when he was in college. Um, and uh, it also gives a good, um, it's an example of, uh, not sure if it's really dissociative uh, amnesia or dissociative fugue, probably closer to dissociative fugue. And um, it is uh, unusual in that it's very long term. Uh, I think it's been three or four years since he uh, suffered retrograde amnesia. And uh, last time I checked, he hadn't recovered uh, memories. I checked a few months ago. Um, so uh, it's very long term. And uh, actually, the people who knew him before the incident said uh, oftentimes we'll say that he's a nicer person now than he was before. So isn't that weird? Yeah. What's that? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> All right. So I will see you. Oh, I gave you back quizzes. Uh, that's out of a possible eight points because two of the items showed low uh, reliability. So I'll see you uh, next week, huh?